Chapter 9 of Ten Days That Shook the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Beck. Ten Days That Shook the World by John Reed. Chapter 9. Victory. Order number one. To the troops of the Pulkov Detachment. November 13th, 1917. 38 minutes past 9 a.m. After a cruel fight, the troops of the Pulkovo detachment completely routed the counter-revolutionary forces, who retreated from their positions in disorder, and under the cover of Zarokie Selo, fell back towards Pavlovsk II and Gatchinia. Our advanced units occupied the northeastern extremity of Tsarkoe Selo and the station Alexandrovskia. The Kolpino detachment was on our left, the Krasnoye Selo detachment to our right. I ordered the Polokovo forces to occupy Tsyokoyo Selo, to fortify its approaches, especially on the side of Gachina. Also, to pass and occupy Polovskoloi, fortifying its southern side, and to take up the railroad as far as Dano. The troops must take all measures to strengthen the positions occupied by them, arranging trenches and other defensive works. They must enter into close liaison with the detachments of Kolpino and Kryosnior Selo, and also with the staff of the Commander-in-Chief for the defence of Petrograd. Signed, Commander-in-Chief over all forces acting against the counter-revolutionary troops of Kerensky, Lieutenant Colonel Muravivov. Tuesday morning. But how is this? Only two days ago the Petrograd campagna was full of leaderless bands, wandering aimlessly, without food, without artillery, without a plan. What had fused that disorganized mass of undisciplined Red Guards and soldiers without officers into an army obedient to its own elected high command, tempered to meet and break the assault of cannon and Cossack cavalry? See Appendix 9, Section 1. People in revolt have a way of defying military precedent. The ragged armies of the French Revolution are not forgotten. Valmy and the lines of Weizenburg massed against the soviet forces were yunkers cossacks landowners nobility black hundreds the tsar come again okurana and siberian chains and the vast and terrible menace of the germans victory in the words of carlyle meant apotheosis and millennium without end sunday night the commissars of the military revolutionary committee returning desperately from the field the garrison of Petrograd elected its committee of five, its battle staff, three soldiers and two officers, all certified free from counter-revolutionary taint. Colonel Moraevov, expatriate, was in command, an efficient man, but to be carefully watched. At Kolpino, at Obukohov, at Pulkovo, and Kryozny Selo were formed provisional detachments, increased in size as the stragglers came in from the surrounding country mixed soldiers sailors and red guards parts of regiments infantry cavalry and artillery all together and a few armoured cars day broke and the pickets of kerensky's cossacks came in touch 
scattered rifle fire, summons to surrender. Over the bleak plain on the cold quiet air spread the sound of battle, falling upon the ears of roving bands as they gathered about their little fires waiting. So it was beginning. They made towards the battle, and the worker hordes pouring out along the straight roads quickened their pace. Thus, upon all the points of attack, automatically converged angry human swarms, to be met by commissars in their assigned positions, or work to do. This was their battle, for their world. The officers in command were elected by them. For the moment that incoherent multiple will was one will. Those who participated in the fighting described to me how the sailors fought until they ran out of cartridges, and then stormed. How the untrained workmen rushed the charging Cossacks and tore them from their horses. How the anonymous hordes of the people, gathering in the darkness around the battle, rose like a tide and poured over the enemy. Before midnight of Monday the Cossacks broke and were fleeing, leaving their artillery behind them and the army of the proletariat, on a long ragged front, moved forward and rolled into Sarovsky, before the enemy had a chance to destroy the great government wireless station, from which now the commissars of Smolny were hurling out to the world peons of triumph. To all Soviets of workers and soldiers' deputies, the 12th of November, in a bloody combat near Savoki Selo, the revolutionary army defeated the counter-revolutionary troops of Kerensky and Kornilov. In the name of the revolutionary government, I order all regiments to take the offensive against the enemies of the revolutionary democracy, and to take all measures to arrest Kerensky, and also to oppose any adventure which might menace the conquests of the revolution and the victory of the proletariat. Long live the revolutionary army! Moraviov News from the provinces. At Sevastopol, the local Soviet had assumed the power. A huge meeting of the sailors on the battleships in the harbour had forced their officers to line up and swear allegiance to the new government. At Nizhny Novgorod, the Soviet was in control. From Kazan came reports of a battle in the streets. Yunkers and a brigade of artillery against the Bolshevik garrison. Desperate fighting had broken out again in Moscow. The Yunkers and White Guards held the Kremlin in the centre of the town, beaten upon from all sides by the troops of the Military Revolutionary Committee. The Soviet artillery was stationed in Skobliev Square, bombarding the City Duma building, the prefecture and the Hotel Metropole. The cobblestones of the Svernkaya and the Nitsikaya had been torn up for trenches and barricades. A hail of machine-gun fire swept the quarters of the great banks and commercial houses. There were no lights, no telephones. The bourgeois population lived in the cellars. The last bulletin said that the Military Revolutionary Committee had delivered an ultimatum to the Committee of Public Safety, demanding the immediate surrender of the Kremlin, or bombardment would follow. Bombard the Kremlin, cried the ordinary citizen. They dare not. From Volgadnia to Shita in far Siberia, from Pskov to Sevastopol on the Black Sea, in great cities and little villages, civil war burst into flame. From thousands of factories, 
peasant communes, regimes and armies, ships on the wide sea, greetings poured into Petrograd, greetings to the government of the people. The Cossack government at Novocherkass telegraphed to Kerensky. The government of the Cossack troops invites the provisional government and the members of the Council of the Republic to come, if possible, to Novocherkask, where we can organize in common the struggle against the Bolsheviki. In Finland, also, things were stirring. The Soviets of Helsingfors and the Trensko Trobalt, the Central Committee of the Baltic Fleet, jointly proclaimed a state of siege and declared that all attempts to interfere with the Bolshevik forces and all armed resistance to its orders would be severely repressed. At the same time, the Finnish Railway Union called a countrywide general strike to put into operation the laws passed by the Socialist Diet of June 1917, dissolved by Kerensky. Early in the morning I went out to Smolny. Going up the long wooden sidewalk from the outer gate, I saw the first thin, hesitating snowflakes fluttering down from the grey, windless sky. "'Snow!' cried the soldier at the door, grinning with delight. "'Good for the health!' Inside the long gloomy halls and bleak rooms seemed deserted. No one moved in all the enormous pile. A deep uneasy sound came to my ears, and looking around I noticed that everywhere on the floor, along the walls, men were sleeping. Rough, dirty men, workers and soldiers, splattered and caked with mud, sprawled alone or in heaps, in the careless attitudes of death. Some wore ragged bandages marked with blood. Guns and cartridge belts were scattered about. The victorious proletarian army! In the upstairs buffet so thick that they lay that one could hardly walk. The air was foul. Through the clouded windows a pale light streamed. A battered samovar, cold, stood on the counter, and many glasses holding dregs of tea. Beside them lay a copy of the Military Revolutionary Committee's last bulletin, upside down, scrawled with painful handwriting. It was a memorial written by some soldier to his comrades fallen in the fight against Kerensky, just as he had set it down before falling on the floor to sleep. The writing was blurred with what looked like tears. Alexei Vinogradov, D. Maskvin, S. Stobikolvi, A. Voskrensky, D. Leonsky, D. Preobrazensky, V. Ledansky, M. Berchikov. These men were drafted into the army on November the 15th, 1916. Only three are left of the above. Mikhail Berkiov, Alexei Vozrensky, Dmitry Leonsky. Sleep, warrior eagles, sleep with peaceful soul. You have deserved our own ones, happiness and eternal peace. Under the earth of the grave you have straightly closed your ranks. Sleep, citizens. Only the Military Revolutionary Committee still functioned, unsleeping. Skripnik, emerging from the inner room, said that Gotz had been arrested, but had flatly denied signing the proclamation of the Committee for Salvation, as had Avensky Sintiev, and the Committee for Salvation itself had repudiated the appeal to the garrison. There was still disaffection among the city regiments, Skripnik reported, and the Vorinsky regiment had refused to fight against Kerensky. 
several detachments of neutral troops with chernov at their head were at gatchina trying to persuade kerensky to halt his attack on petrograd skripnik laughed there can be no neutrals now he said we've won his sharp-bearded face glowed with an almost religious exultation more than sixty delegates have arrived from the front with assurances of support by all the armies except the troops on the Romanian front, who have not been heard from. The army committees have suppressed all news from Petrograd, but now we have a regular system of couriers. Graphic. Order given me at staff headquarters by command of the Council of People's Commissars to transmit the first dispatch out of Petrograd after the November Revolution over the government wires to America. Translation Staff, Military Revolutionary Committee, Soviet W and SD, 2nd November 1917, number 1860, Certificate is given by the present to the journalist of the New York Socialist Press, John Reed, that the text of the telegram, herewith, has been examined by the government of People's Commissars, and there is no objection to its transmission, and also it is recommended that all cooperate in every way to transmit same to its destination. For the Commander-in-Chief, Antonov, Chief of Staff, Vladimir Bonch Bruvich. Down in the front hall, Kamenivik was just entering, worn out by the all-night session of the conference to form a new government, but happy. Already the socialist revolutionaries are inclined to admit us into the new government, he told me. The right-wing groups are frightened by the revolutionary tribunals. They demand, in a sort of panic, that we dissolve them before going any further. We have accepted the proposition of the Vigzel to form a homogeneous socialist ministry and they're working on that now you see it all springs from our victory when we were down they wouldn't have us here at any price not everybody's in favor of some agreement with the soviets what we need is a really decisive victory kerensky wants an armistice but he'll have to surrender see appendix nine section two that was the temper of the Bolshevik leaders. To a foreign journalist who asked Trotsky what statement he had to make to the world, Trotsky replied, At this moment, the only statement possible is the one we are making through the mouths of our cannon. But there was an undercurrent of real annexity in the tide of the victory, the question of finances. Instead of opening the banks, as had been ordered by the Military Revolutionary Committee, the Union of Bank Employees had held a meeting and declared a formal strike. Smolny had demanded some 35 millions of rubles from the state bank, and the cashier had locked the vaults, only paying out money to the representatives of the provisional government. The reactionaries were using the state bank as a political weapon. For instance, when the Vixel demanded money to pay the salaries of the employees of the government railroads, it was told to apply to Smolny. I went to the state bank to see the new commissar, a red-haired Ukrainian Bolshevik named Petrovich. He was trying to bring order out of the chaos in which affairs had been left by the striking clerks. In all the offices of the huge place, perspiring volunteer workers, soldiers and sailors, their tongues sticking out of their mouths in the intensity of their effort, were poring over the great ledgers with a bewildered air. The Duma building was crowded. There were still isolated cases of defiance toward the new government, but they were rare. 
the Central Land Committee had appealed to the peasants, ordering them not to recognize the land decree passed by the Congress of the Soviets, because it would cause confusion and civil war. Mayor Schreider announced that because of the Bolshevik insurrection, the elections to the Constituent Assembly would have to be indefinitely postponed. Two questions seemed to be utmost in all minds. Shocked by the ferocity of the civil war, first, a truce to the bloodshed. See Appendix 9, Section 3. Second, the creation of a new government. There was no longer any talk of destroying the Bolsheviki, and very little about excluding them from the government, except from the populist socialists and the peasant Soviets. Even the Central Army Committee at the Stavka, the most determined enemy of Smolny, telephoned from Mogilev. If, to constitute the new ministry, it is necessary to come to an understanding with the Bolsheviki, we agree to admit them, in a minority, to the cabinet. Pravda, ironically calling attention to Kerensky's humanitarian sentiments, published his dispatch to the Committee for Salvation. In accord with the proposals of the Committee for Salvation, and all the democratic organizations united around it, I have halted all military action against the rebels. A delegate of the committee has been sent to enter into negotiations. Take all measures to stop the useless shedding of blood. The Vixel sent a telegram to all Russia. The conference of the Union of Railway Workers with the representatives of both the belligerent parties who admit the necessity of an agreement, protest energetically against the use of political terrorism in the civil war, especially when it is carried on between different factions of the revolutionary democracy, and declare that political terrorism, in whatever form, is in contradiction to the very idea of the negotiations for a new government. Graphic. Popular leaflets sold in the streets just after the Bolshevik insurrection containing rhymes and jokes about the defeated bourgeoisie and the moderate socialist leaders called How the Bourgeois Bourgeoisie Lost the Power. Delegations from the conference were sent to the front, to Gatchina. In the conference itself everything seemed on the point of final settlement. It had even been decided to elect a provisional people's council composed of about 400 members 75 representing Smolny, 75 the old Tsayika, and the rest split up among the town doomers, the trade unions, land committees and political parties. Chernov was mentioned as the new premier. Lenin and Trotsky, rumour said, were to be excluded. About noon I was again in front of Smolny, talking with the driver of an ambulance bound for the revolutionary front. Could I go with him? Certainly. He was a volunteer, a university student, and as we rolled down the street, shouted over his shoulder to me phrases of execrable German. Also, Ruth, we nach die Kasernen zu essen gehen. I made out that there would be lunch at some barracks. On the Kirochnaya we turned into an immense courtyard surrounded by military buildings, and mounted a dark stairway to a low room lit by one window. At a long wooden table were seated some twenty soldiers, eating shchik, cabbage soup, from a great tin wash-tub with wooden spoons, and talking loudly with much laughter. Welcome to the battalion committee of the 6th Reserve Engineers Battalion!
cried my friend, and introduced me as an American socialist. Whereat everyone rose to shake my hand, and one old soldier put his arms around me and gave me a hearty kiss. A wooden spoon was produced and I took my place at the table. Another tub, full of cashew, was brought in, a huge loaf of black bread, and of course the inevitable teapots. At once everyone began asking me questions about America. Was it true that people in a free country sold their votes for money? If so, how did they get what they wanted? How about this Tammany? Was it true that in a free country a little group of people could control a whole city and exploited it for their personal benefit? Why did the people stand it? Even under the Tsar such things could not happen in Russia. True, here there was always graft, but to buy and sell a whole city full of people, and in a free country, had the people no revolutionary feeling? I tried to explain that in my country people tried to change things by law. Of course, nodded a young sergeant named Baklanov, who spoke French. But you have a highly developed capitalist class. Then the capitalist class must control the legislatures and the courts. How then can the people change things? I am open to conviction, for I do not know your country. But to me it is incredible. I said that I was going to Tsarkoye Selo. I, too, said Baklanov suddenly. And I, and I, the whole roomful decided on the spot to go to Tsarkoye Selo. Just then came a knock on the door. It opened, and in it stood the figure of the colonel. No one rose, but all shouted a greeting. May I come in? asked the colonel. Prozim, prozim, they answered heartily. He entered smiling a tall, distinguished figure in a goat-skin cape embroidered with gold. I think I heard you say you were going to Tsarkoye Selo, comrades, he said. Could I go with you? Baklanov considered. I do not think there is anything to be done here today, he answered. Yes, comrade, we shall be very glad to have you. The colonel thanked him and sat down filling a glass of tea. In a low voice, for fear of wounding the colonel's pride, Baklanov explained to me, You see, I am the chairman of the committee. We control the battalion ex absolutely, except in action, when the colonel is delegated by us to command. In action his orders must be obeyed, but he is strictly responsible to us. In barracks he must ask our permission before taking any action. You might call him our executive officer. Arms were distributed to us, revolvers and rifles. We might meet some Cossacks, you know. And we all piled into the ambulance, together with three great bundles of newspapers for the front. Straight down the Litany we rattled and along the Zagordny Prospect. Next to me sat a youth with the soldier straps of a lieutenant who seemed to speak all European languages with equal fluency. He was a member of the battalion committee. I am not a Bolshevik, he assured me emphatically. My family is a very ancient and noble one. I, myself, am, you might say, a cadet. But how? I began bewildered. Oh, yes, I'm a member of the committee. I make no secret of my political opinions, but the others do not mind, because they know I do not believe in opposing the will of the majority. 
I have refused to take any action in the present civil war, however, for I do not believe in taking up arms against my brother Russians. Provocator! Kornilovitz! The others cried at him gaily, slapping him on the shoulder. Passing under the huge grey stone archway of the Moscovy Gate, covered with golden hieroglyphics, ponderous imperial eagles and the names of Tsars, we sped out on the wide, straight highway, grey with the first light fall of snow. It was thronged with red guards stumbling along on foot toward the revolutionary front, shouting and singing, and others grey-faced and muddy coming back. Most of them seemed to be mere boys, women with spades, some with rifles and bandoliers, others wearing the red cross on their armbands, the bowed, toil-worn women of the slums. Squads of soldiers marching out of steps with an affectionate jeer for the red guards. Sailors, grim-looking, children with bundles of food for their fathers and mothers, all these coming and going trudged through the whitened mud that covered the cobbles of the highway inches deep. We passed cannon, jingling southward with their caissons, trucks bound both ways, bristling with armed men, ambulances full of wounded from the direction of the battle, and once a peasant cart, creaking slowly along, in which sat a white-faced boy bent over his shattered stomach and screaming monotonously. In the fields on either side women and old men were digging trenches and stringing barbed wire entanglements. Back northward the clouds rolled away dramatically and the pale sun came out. Across the flat marshy plain Petrograd glittered. To the right, white and gilded and coloured bulbs and pinnacles, to the left, tall chimneys, some pouring out black smoke, and beyond a lowering sky over Finland. On each side of us were churches, monasteries. Occasionally a monk was visible, silently watching the pulse of the proletarian army throbbing on the road. Apulkovo the road divided, and there we halted in the midst of a great crowd, where the human streams poured from three directions. Friends meeting, excited and congratulatory, describing the battle to one another. A row of houses facing the crossroads was marked with bullets, and the earth was trampled into mud half a mile around. The fighting had been furious here. In the near distance, riderless Cossack horses circled hungrily, for the grass of the plain had died long ago. Right in front of us, an awkward red guard was trying to ride one, falling off again and again to the childlike delight of a thousand rough men. The left road, along which the remnants of the Cossacks had retreated, led up a little hill to a hamlet where there was a glorious view of the immense plain, grey as a windless sea, tumultuous clouds hanging over and the imperial city disgorging its thousands along the roads. Far over to the left lay the little hill of Kronoy Selo, the parade ground of the Imperial Guard's summer camp and the Imperial Dairy. In the middle distance nothing broke the flat monotony but a few walled monasteries and convents, some isolated factories and several large buildings with unkempt grounds that were asylums and orphanages. Here, said the driver as we went on over a barren hill, here was where Vera Slutskaya died. Yes, the Bolshevik member of the Duma. It happened early this morning. She was in an automobile with Zalkind and another man. There was a truce, and they started for the front trenches. 
they were talking and laughing, when all of a sudden from the armoured train in which Kerensky himself was riding, somebody saw the automobile and fired a cannon. The shell struck Vera Slutskaya and killed her. And so we came into Sarkoye, all bustling with the swaggering heroes of the proletarian horde. Now the palace where the Soviet had met was a busy place. Red guards and sailors filled the courtyard. Sentries stood at the doors, and a stream of couriers and commissars pushed in and out. In the Soviet room a samovar had been set up, and fifty or more workers, soldiers, sailors and officers stood around, drinking tea and talking at the top of their voices. In one corner two clumsy-handed working men were trying to make a multigraphing machine go. At the centre table the huge Dibenko bent over a map, marking out positions for the troops with red and blue pencils. In his free hand he carried as always the enormous blue steel revolver. Anon he sat himself down at a typewriter and pounded away with one finger. Every little while he would pause, pick up the revolver and lovingly spin the chamber. A couch lay along the wall and on this was stretched a young workman. Two red guards were bending over him, but the rest of the company did not pay any attention. In his breast was a hole. Through his clothes fresh blood came welling up with every heartbeat. His eyes were closed, and his young, bearded face was greenish-white. Faintly and slowly he still breathed, with every breath sighing, Mere Budit, Mere Budit, Peace is coming, Peace is coming. Dibenko looked up as we came in. Ah, he said to Baklanov, Comrade, will you go up to the Commandant's headquarters and take charge? Wait, I will write you credentials. He went to the typewriter and slowly picked out the letters. The new Commandant of Tsarkoye, Zello, and I went toward the Ekaterina Palace. Baklanov, very excited and important. In the same ornate white room, some red guards were rummaging curiously around, while my old friend, the Colonel, stood by the window biting his moustache. He greeted me like a long-lost brother. At a table near the door sat the French Bessarabian. The Bolsheviki had ordered him to remain and continue his work. What could I do? he muttered. People like myself cannot fight on either side in such a war as this. No matter how much we may instinctively dislike the dictatorship of the mob, I only regret that I am so far from my mother in Bessarabia. Baklanov was formally taking over the office from the commandant. Here, said the colonel nervously, are the keys to the desk. A red guard interrupted. Where's the money? he asked rudely. The colonel seemed surprised. Money? Money? Ah, you mean the chest. There it is, said the colonel, just as I found it when I took possession three days ago. Keys? The colonel shrugged. I have no keys. The Red Guard sneered knowingly. Very convenient, he said. Let us open the chest, said Baklanov. Bring an axe. Here is an American comrade. Let him smash the chest open and write down what he finds there. I swung the axe and the wooden chest was empty. Let's arrest him, said the Red Guard venomously. He is Kerensky's man. He has stolen the money and given it to Kerensky. Baklanov did not want to. Oh, no, he said. It was the Kornlyovitz before him. He is not to blame. The 
devil cried the red guard he is kerensky's man i tell you if you won't arrest him then we will and we'll take him to petrograd and put him in peter paul where he belongs at this the other red guards growled assent with a piteous glance at us the colonel was led away down in front of the soviet palace an auto truck was going to the front half a dozen red guards some sailors and a soldier or two under command of a huge workman clambered in and shouted to me to come along red guards issued from headquarters each of them staggering under an armload of small corrugated iron bombs filled with grubbit which they say is ten times as strong and five times as sensitive as dynamite these they threw into the truck a three-inch cannon was loaded and then tied onto the tail of the truck with bits of rope and wire. We started with a shout, at top speed of course, the heavy truck swaying from side to side. The cannon leaped from one wheel to the other and the grubbit bombs went rolling back and forth over our feet, fetching up against the sides of the car with a crash. The big red guard, whose name was Vladimir Nikolaevich, plied me with questions about America why did america come into the war are the american workers ready to throw over the capitalist what is the situation in the mooney case now will they extradite berkman to san francisco and other very difficult to answer all delivered in a shout above the roaring of the truck while we held on to each other and danced amid the caroming bombs occasionally a patrol tried to stop us soldiers ran out into the road before us shouted stoy and threw up their guns we paid no attention. The devil take you, cried the Red Guards. We don't stop for anybody. We're Red Guards. And we thundered imperiously on, while Vladimir Nikolaevich bellowed to me about the internationalization of the Panama Canal and such matters. About five miles out, we saw a squad of sailors marching back and slow down. Where's the front, brothers? The foremost sailor halted and scratched his head. Hmm. This morning he said it was about half a kilometre down the road but the damn thing isn't anywhere now we walked and walked and walked but we couldn't find it they climbed into the truck and we proceeded it must have been about a mile further that vladimir nikolaevich cocked his ear and shouted to the chauffeur to stop firing he said do you hear it for a moment dead silence and then a little ahead and to the left, three shots in rapid succession. Along here, the side of the road was heavily wooded. Very much excited now, we crept along, speaking in whispers until the truck was nearly opposite the place where the firing had come from. Descending, we spread out, and every man carrying his rifle went stealthily into the forest. Two comrades, meanwhile, detached the cannon and slewed it around until it aimed as nearly as possible at our backs. It was silent in the woods. The leaves were gone, and the tree trunks were a pale one colour in the low, sickly autumn sun. Not a thing moved, except the ice of little woodland pools shivering under our feet. Was it an ambush? We went uneventfully forward until the trees began to thin, and paused. Beyond, in a little clearing, three soldiers sat around a small fire, perfectly oblivious. Vladimir Nikolaevich stepped forward. Shrazvichi, comrades, he greeted, while behind him one cannon, twenty rifles, and a truckload of grubbit bombs hung by a hair. The soldiers scrambled to their feet. What was the shooting going on around here? One of the soldiers answered, 
looking relieved. Why, we were just shooting a rabbit or two, comrade. The truck hurtled on towards Romanov through the bright, empty day. At the first crossroads, two soldiers ran out in front of us, waving their rifles. We slowed down and stopped. Passes, comrades! The Red Guards raised a great clamour. We are Red Guards! We don't need any passes. Go on, never mind them. But a sailor objected. This is wrong, comrades. We must have revolutionary discipline. Suppose some counter-revolutionaries came along in a truck and said, We don't need any passes. The comrades don't know you. At this there was a debate. One by one, however, the sailors and soldiers joined with the first. Grumbling, each red guard produced his dirty Bumaga paper. They were all alike except mine, which had been issued by the revolutionary staff at Smolny. The sentries declared I must go with them. The Red Guards objected strenuously, but the sailor who had spoken first insisted. This comrade we know to be a true comrade, he said. But there are the orders of the committee, and these orders must be obeyed. That is revolutionary discipline. In order not to make any trouble, I got down from the truck and watched it disappear, careering down the road, all the company waving farewell. The soldiers consulted in low tones for a moment, and then led me to a wall against which they placed me. It flashed upon me suddenly. They were going to shoot me! In all three directions not a human being was in sight. The only sign of life was smoke from the chimney of a dacha, a rambling wooden house a quarter of a mile up the side road. The two soldiers were walking out into the road. Desperately I ran after them. But comrades, see, here is the seal of the military revolutionary committee. They stared stupidly at my pass, and then at each other. It is different from the others, said one solemnly. We cannot read, brother. I took him by the arm. Come, I said, let's go to that house. Someone there can surely read. They hesitated. No, said one. The other looked me over. Well, why not, he muttered. After all, it is a serious crime to kill an innocent man. We walked up to the front door of the house and knocked. A short, stout woman opened it and shrank back in alarm, babbling. I don't know anything about them. I don't know anything about them. One of my guards held out the pass. She screamed, just to read it, comrade. Hesitatingly, she took the paper and read aloud swiftly. The bearer of this pass... John Reed is a representative of the American social democracy, an internationalist. Out on the road again, the two soldiers held another consultation. We must take you to the regimental committee, they said. In the fast-deepening twilight, we trudged along the muddy road. Occasionally, we met squads of soldiers who stopped and surrounded me with looks of menace, handling my pass around and arguing violently as to whether or not I should be killed. It was dark when we came to the barracks of the second Sykoi Cello Rifles, low sprawling buildings huddled along the post road. A number of soldiers slouching at the entrance asked eager questions. A spy? A provocateur? We mounted a winding stair and emerged into a great bare room with a huge stove in the centre and rows of cots on the floor, where about a thousand soldiers were playing cards, talking, singing and asleep. In the roof was a jagged hole made by Kerensky's cannon. I stood in the doorway, and a sudden silence ran among the groups, who turned and stared at me. 
Of a sudden they began to move, slowly and then with a rush, thundering with faces full of hate. Comrades! Comrades! yelled one of my guards. Committee! Committee! The throng halted, banked around me, muttering. Out of them shouldered a lean youth, wearing a red armband. Who is this? he asked roughly. The guards explained. Give me the paper! He read it carefully, glancing at me with keen eyes. And then he smiled and handed me the pass. Comrades, this is an American comrade. I am chairman of the committee and I welcome you to the regiment. A sudden general buzz grew into a roar of greeting and they pressed forward to shake my hand. You have not dined? Here we have had our dinner. You shall go to the officers' club where there are some who speak your language. He led me across the courtyard to the door of another building. An aristocratic-looking youth, the shoulder straps of a lieutenant, was entering. The chairman presented me, and shaking hands went back. I am Stepan Grigorovich Morovsky at your service, said the lieutenant in perfect French. From the ornate entrance hall a ceremonial staircase led upward, lighted by glittering lustre. On the second floor billiard rooms, card rooms, a library opened from the hall. We entered the dining room, at a long table in the centre of which sat about twenty officers in full uniform, wearing their gold and silver handled swords, the ribbons and crosses of imperial decorations. All rose politely as I entered and made a place for me beside the colonel, a large, impressive man with a grizzled beard. Orderlies were deftly serving dinner. The atmosphere was that of any officer's mess in Europe. Where was the revolution? You are not Bolsheviki? I asked Morovsky. A smile went round the table, but I caught one or two glancing furtively at the orderly. No, answered my friend. There is only one Bolshevik officer in this regiment. He is in Petrograd tonight. The colonel is a Menshevik. Captain Kurlov there is a cadet. I myself am a socialist revolutionary of the right wing. I should say that most of the officers in the army are not Bolsheviki, but like me they believe in democracy. They believe that they must follow the soldier masses. Dinner over, maps were brought, and the colonel spread them out on the table. The rest crowded round to see. Here, said the colonel, pointing to pencil marks, were our positions this morning. Vladimir Kirillovich, where is your company? Captain Kurloff pointed. According to orders, we occupied the position along this road. Karsevin relieved me at five o'clock. Just then the door of the room opened, and there entered the chairman of the regimental committee with another shoulder. They joined the group behind the colonel, peering at the map. Good, said the colonel. Now the Cossacks have fallen back ten kilometres in our sector. I do not think it is necessary to take up advanced positions. Gentlemen, for tonight you will hold the present line, strengthening the positions by... If you please, interrupted the chairman of the regimental committee, the orders are to advance with all speed and prepare to engage the Cossacks north of Gatchina in the morning. A crushing defeat is necessary. Kindly make the proper dispositions. There was a short silence. The colonel again turned to the map. Very well, he said in a different voice. Stepan Grigorovich, will you please? Rapidly tracing lines with a blue pencil, he gave his orders, while a sergeant made shorthand notes. The sergeant then withdrew, and ten minutes later returned with the orders typewritten and one carbon copy. The chairman of the committee studied the map with a copy of the orders before him. All right, he said, rising. 
Folding the carbon copy, he put it in his pocket. Then he signed the other, stamped it with a round seal taken from his pocket, and presented it to the colonel. Here was the revolution. I returned to the Soviet palace in Tsoyski in the regimental staff automobile. Still the crowds of workers, soldiers and sailors pouring in and out, still the choking press of trucks, armoured cars, cannon before the door, and the shouting, the laughter of unwanted victory. Half a dozen red guards forced their way through, a priest in the middle. This was Father Ivan, they said, who had blessed the Cossacks when they entered the town. I heard afterward that he was shot. See Appendix 9, Section 4. Dibenko was just coming out, giving rapid orders right and left. In his hand he carried the big revolver. An automobile stood with racing engine at the curb. Alone he climbed into the rear seat and was off, off to Gatchina to conquer Kerensky. Toward nightfall he arrived at the outskirts of the town and went on afoot. What Dibenko told the Cossacks nobody knows, but the fact is that General Krasnov and his staff and several thousand Cossacks surrendered and advised Kerensky to do the same. See Appendix 9, Section 5. As for Kerensky, I reprint here the disposition made by General Krasnov on the morning of November the 14th. Gachina, November 14th, 1917. Today, about three o'clock a.m., I was summoned by the Supreme Commander, Kerensky. He was very agitated and very nervous. General, he said to me, you have betrayed me. Your Cossacks declare categorically that they will arrest me and deliver me to the sailors. Yes, I answered. There is talk of it, and I know that you have no sympathy anywhere. But the officers say the same thing. Yes, most of all, it is the officers who are discontented with you. What shall I do? I ought to commit suicide. If you are an honourable man, you will go immediately to Petrograd with a white flag, you will present yourself to the Military Revolutionary Committee and enter into negotiations as Chief of the Provisional Government. All right, I will do that, General. I will give you a guard and ask that a sailor go with you. No, no, not a sailor. Do you know whether it is true that Dibenko is here? I don't know who Dibenko is. He is my enemy. There is nothing to do. If you play for high stakes, you must know how to take a chance. Yes, I'll leave tonight. Why? That would be a flight. Leave calmly and openly so that everyone can see you are not running away. Very well, but you must give me a guard on which I can count. Good. I went out and called the Cossack Ruskov of the 10th Regiment of the Don and ordered him to pick out 10 Cossacks to accompany the Supreme Commander. Half an hour later, the Cossacks came to tell me that Kerensky was not in his quarters, that he had run away. I gave the alarm and ordered that he be searched for, supposing that he could not have left Gachina, but he could not be found. And so Kerensky fled alone, disguised in the uniform of a sailor, and by that act lost whatever popularity he had retained among the Russian masses. I went back to Petrograd riding on the front seat of an auto truck, driven by a workman and filled with red guards. We had no kerosene, so our lights were not burning. The road was crowded with the proletarian army going home, and new reserves pouring out to take their places. Immense trucks like ours, columns of military wagons, loomed up in the night without lights as we were. We hurtled furiously on, 
retched right and left to avoid collisions that seemed inevitable, scraping wheels, followed by the epithets of pedestrians. Across the horizon spread the glittering lights of the capital, immeasurably more splendid by night than by day, like a dike of jewels heaped on the barren plain. The old workman who drove held the wheel in one hand, while the other he swept the far-gleaming capital in an exultant gesture. Mine, he cried, his face all alight. All mine now, my Petrograd. End of chapter 9 Recording by Richard Beck